Welcome to the weekly Beach Church Message Podcast. We're continuing in our road trip series, and this week we're in Ephesians chapter 2. You're not going to want to miss this message, as we believe God wants to speak directly to you. Whenever we open His Word, we know that He cares about us, He loves us, and we get to see Jesus come to life. Hey, in the life of our church, starting point is coming up. And so if you need to take a next step, maybe from this message, you say, hey, I'm ready to put my faith and trust in Jesus, but you need some help with those next steps, starting point is the place for you. A new starting point session starts the first Sunday of every month. And so the first one in August is coming. Make sure you go to todayatbeach.com to get signed up for starting point. For now, let's jump into God's Word with Ephesians chapter 2. See, y'all, David Sanders is one of the best surfers on our staff. And of all the videos, the one time it shows him, he's falling down. I just think that's awesome. Hey, welcome to Beach Church, whether you're joining us online uh, or here in person. We're so glad to have you here today. My name is Jerry, and uh, I am one of the pastors here. And um, so there is this kind of running joke in my family at Christmas time about presents with me. Because years ago, uh, one of my children gave me a gift that I wound up returning. And I guess that was like one of the ultimate sins because I returned it. And so now it's weird. Like every Christmas when we're opening presents, everyone's just looking at me every time I open a gift. It's like totally the judgment zone, waiting to see my reaction. And I admit, I don't have a poker face when it comes to receiving gifts. I'm either like into it or I'm like, uh, you know, and it just shows on my face. So um, this year, I got one of those gifts. So I'm not a utilitarian guy. I mean, I'm just not. There's hardly a utilitarian bone in my body. So, you know, with me, you know, I, I, I don't like, it's kind of like kids like getting toys instead of clothes. I basically like getting clothes instead of gadgets, you know, things that are going to improve my life. But this year I got a gadget and, uh, and I probably had the look, so don't judge me. I probably had the look and I was like, you know, and I think I even teased Denise. Once again, don't judge me because she gave it to me. I think I judged her and I think I teased her about it, but here it is. A coffee mug warmer. <laughs> Woo, I'm telling you, man. And I, you know, I, I teased Denise a little bit about it. Denise said, Jerry, just try it. Just try it. Guys, it was a game changer in my life. Game changer. I'm gonna tell you, like, I love quiet time in the morning and I love spending time, quiet time. I also spend some time studying, preparing for the messages uh, early in the morning. And uh, one of the things I hate is a lukewarm cup of coffee, right? You know, put ice in it and call it cold brew or steaming hot, but lukewarm, no way, just absolutely not. And so I never realized how many times I would get up to take my lukewarm cup of coffee because I'm like the slowest coffee drinker ever. And uh, I would go back, you know, I don't know how many times every morning and nuke my coffee, which I'm sure is probably not good anyway. And um, this was like a game changer. This was one of the most amazing gifts I have ever received. 
And to think I, I judged my wife completely about this gift, but it was an awesome gift. Now, here's the thing. It's funny to me how we as Christians sometimes can talk about stuff like a coffee warmer and get all passionate and excited about it. And yet when it comes to talking about the greatest gift ever given, it's like crickets. It's like, uh, you know, it's all right, it's pretty good. And, and, and we, we tend to look, it's one of the most important gifts we've ever been given through the lens of just laissez-faire, kind of like, oh, it's all right. Yeah, it's exciting. And I, I can't even imagine what the world must think, the unbelieving world, when we talk about our salvation and the gift that God has given us in Christ with this kind of warmed over, kind of lackadaisical expression. And so here in our, as we continue in this series on the book of Ephesians, uh, we're in chapter two today. And if you missed last week, in chapter one, Paul is writing to this church that he started in a big metropolitan city called Ephesus. And uh, he's writing to them, uh, not because there are problems in the church, but like in other books of the New Testament, when Paul writes a letter to the church, it's usually because there are glaring problems. But here, he doesn't seem to be addressing specific problems, but here's what I do believe he's addressing. When Ephesus first started, it was like the supernatural work of God was taking place. The spirit was working in powerful ways. Unexplainable things were happening and this incredible move of God was getting started and everyone was in awe and wonder of what was happening. But you get the impression somewhere along the way, the church has kind of lost that sense of wonder and awe about the things of God. And so in chapter one, um, and remember the, the, the letters in the Bible were not written in chapters. We've put them into chapters. But, but initially it was just like this one long letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. And so in chapter one, we read about Paul saying, you don't know who you are in Christ. You have received an inheritance like you will never believe and your identity is in him. Not in what the world tells you about yourself, not in what you tell yourself about yourself. Your identity is in Christ. And then in chapter two, he is gonna continue along these same lines talking about the greatest gift they have ever been given. And so we're gonna start chapter two, uh, verse one. <clears throat> now, we're gonna get to the good news. But uh, if, if you haven't been a Christian long, there is bad news that leads to the good news. And so it's going to feel a little heavy at first because Paul's going to start out talking about the bad news, but it's the setup to help us understand why the good news is so stinking good. So it starts with the bad news. Here it is. As for you, he's referring to the people of the church who are believers, you were what? Dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, circle that, all of us, not just some of us, all of us 
lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Hmm. Here's the bad news. Paul wants them to understand, you've got a before and after in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, there was a before and there's an after. And you need to see the depth and the meaning of what it was like to live without Christ and what it's like now to be in Christ. So here's what he says. We, before Christ, were dead spiritually. Before you placed your trust in Jesus, it was not like spiritually you were in therapy, you know, going to physical therapy. It was not like you were just in the hospital spiritually. It wasn't even like you were in the intensive care unit on your last, taking your last breath. Paul says, before Christ, you were dead spiritually. No life, no hope, no heartbeat, eternally separated from God. Because of sin, you were dead, dead, dead. He also goes on to say, you were under the influence of an enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. An enemy. He refers to him as the the spirit of the air. And what what Paul is saying here is that... um, Jesus referred to the enemy as Satan. Jesus believed in a Satan, a actual personality that comes to steal, kill, and destroy God's best in your life. And before you knew the way of Christ, before you knew who Jesus was, there was a gravitational pull about your life towards this influence that wants to derail you and your life from God's best. And in fact, um, Paul or Jesus referred to Satan as the deceiver, the accuser, the father of lies. It was kind of like when you were growing up, didn't you have somebody in your life that was the bad influence? Did you have somebody like that, that your parents say, you know, you are at your worst when you're around that kid. Nothing good comes out of your relationship with that kid. You seem to always get into trouble. And what Paul is saying is before Christ, there was an influence in your life that you probably weren't even as aware of. And it was not a good influence. And it would take you to detours in your life and to places that would not give you God's best. And then Paul also goes on to say, as if that wasn't bad news enough, you and I were on the wrong road. I've been talking about road trip. He said you were on the wrong road before Christ. You were living to gratify the cravings of the flesh. The only way I can describe it is kind of like this. Um, The cravings of the flesh are like following after You know, without God's intervention, following after the things of this world and the things of our own desires that just seem to kind of happen in life. Like we were at the pool the other day with our two grandchildren and they brought some toys and there's this other two-year-old in the pool and it was like every time Aspen 
picked up one of her toys. I could just watch him out of the corner of my eye. He was making a beeline over to her to take the toy out of her hand. And then she would promptly follow him around to get her toy back. And every once in a while, there'd be mine spelled out. They don't know how to say hardly two words to put together, but they know how to say mine. And guess what? No one taught those two-year-olds how to do that. No one taught him. Last night, we had the girls over, and Sinclair had set up this big board game with all the pieces on it, and little old sweet Aspen comes walking over and literally plops herself on all four right in the middle of the game, knocking all the pieces off and then just laying flat on the board as if in total defiance just to create a wreck out of a perfectly innocent situation. You see, there is a gravitational pull. There is something within the DNA of humanity that has gone wrong. And we, we see it, first of all, in our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve. When they were given complete freedom in a world where God said, you know, you are my image bearers. And yet, in that freedom, they chose to turn their back on God. And ever since, there's been this growing ripple effect of sin in our lives. And we don't need proof of that, that something's gone wrong. We see it every day. Violence, war. We see it in addiction. We see it in blatant selfishness and self-centeredness. Treating people less than because of their skin color. Divisiveness. Hunger. A willingness to gain temporary fame and success at the cost of others, a disregard for life, sensual pleasure, going after all of the things on the store shelves of this world that will never ultimately satisfy. Are some of these things gifts from God in in, in ways? Absolutely. But they never ultimately satisfy and they always leave us short. Paul said, you're dead spiritually, You're under the influence of an enemy and you're on the wrong road, headed to nowhere fast. That's pretty bad. But then he makes it even worse. He said, we were deserving of wrath. Before Christ, we had turned our backs on a loving creator. We've crossed lines that we should have never crossed. And the Bible says, The wages or or the earnings from sin is death. It's death. Paul puts this in the strongest possible terms in the Greek. He said, what we deserved is the indignation of our creator with whom we have turned our backs on and violated his good heart for us and the life he created us to live. That's what we deserved. All right, so welcome to church. That's the bad news. Some of you are like, I'm never coming back to this church. This place is cray-cray. So that's the the bad news. Theologically, the way the Bible reveals to us life before Christ, this is the place in which we live. Now, he's going to come to the good news starting in verse 4, but here's a spoiler alert about the good news. The good news is not that we got our act together. The good news 
It's not that we got tired of living in rebellion and waywardness with our creator and we just pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps and got it all together. The good news is this, two words, but God. That's the good news, ultimately, for you and for me, but God. In the NIV translation, it gives us the motive between but God, but, verse four, because of his great love for us. In other words, this is the motive in the heart behind the creator who's getting ready to do something for you and me that we could never do for ourselves. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by, the great, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So here's the good news. Salvation or being restored to a right relationship with God and having the life that the creator intended for us. Salvation is not about good people getting better. It is about dead people being brought to life. See, the good news is not what you've done at all. The good news is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He didn't send a life coach, a mentor, or some kind of self-help guru. He made us alive in Christ. In other words, God did something for you and me that we could not do on our own ability. He made us alive in Christ. It's not that you and I needed to get a little better, like we were right on the edge of our big spiritual breakthrough. We were dead. And he moved on our behalf. You see, when you had no hope, God moved on your behalf. God was for you and God was for me. But God, those two words describe our greatest hope and our good news. When we were dead, when we were goners, but God, but God made us alive in Christ through his grace. I hope those words describe our hearts and our lives because that is our greatest hope. You were dead in sin, but God. I had lost my way, but God. I am in the bondage of addiction, but God. I feel like a failure, but God. I'm confused, but God. I lost my job, but God. My marriage is in trouble, but God. I'm hopelessly in debt, but God. You see, wherever life draws a period, if there is a but God in your life, there's always a comma. There is always hope. And this is what Paul is saying, that when we were desperate and we were goners and we could do nothing to change our condition, 
God changed our hearts. God rewrote your destiny when you, through faith, placed your trust in the finished work of Jesus when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. That is the good news of our faith. But Paul also goes on to say this, and I think this is so important when it comes to what faith really looks like. He basically says, grace can never be earned, only received. It is a gift of God. I love this quote by Terry Wardle. He said, nothing beats a person down like the pressure of always trying to measure up. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was with your parents. Imagine what it feels like to to feel that way in your relationship with God. Always feeling like you never measure up. That's kind of my story. That's my testimony. I grew up in a family who loved us like crazy, but but there was extreme pressure in the household to perform, uh, to to live in a certain way where you achieve success, Um, part of that was I was conceived out of wedlock and so my parents felt all the shame of of that uh, pregnancy before I even knew what was going on in my life and that shaped a part of their lives together my dad didn't he barely graduated from high school and he had earned everything and he was successful and it had all come because of effort and he wanted that for us and so everything was about you know earning your way towards something. And there's a certain level of health with something like that. But man, when it comes to your relationship with God, there is no earning about it. In fact, it was a, it was a retreat when I was in high school where this very passage was read that all of a sudden I realized that, that I, could, I didn't have to be on this treadmill throughout my whole life, this treadmill of feeling like I was always trying to earn God's love. And and I I felt like whenever I did something right, I felt like God was looking over. He was very impressed. And then when I would do something wrong, I felt like God was over in the corner like this. And that that was what my relationship with God was all about until that retreat where for some reason, you know, the light bulb, you know, the spirit just kind of turned on the light bulb for me and all of a sudden I realized I had tried all my life to earn something that was a gift. Have you ever paid someone for a gift? Like, no, let me pay you for that. No, it's a gift. This is what, you know, religion oftentimes where it leads us. And that's what I was doing. I just was constantly feeling like I never could quite get ahead with God. Like there was this big scoreboard and uh, I was on the losing end. And this was my relationship with God. And that night at that retreat in high school changed my life forever. It put me on a new journey, a new direction. See, I think some of us are on that kind of self-improvement plan. Maybe for some of you, you're a Christian today and you realize you got in, it was a gift of God, but it seems like everything since then has all been about earning your brownie points with God. Paul said, he gave us, 
his grace so that we could experience the riches of that in all of the ages to come, not just in the moment you gave your life to Christ. You still live under that grace. Every moment of every day, God is for you, not against you. And then for some maybe who are not believers, I think there's some of us that believe that the self-improvement plan is the way to eternity and to salvation. There's, there have been studies done which, which they've talked to people outside of the church and inside of the church about how do people get to heaven? And the majority of people still believe that the way you get to heaven is that you somehow just live a little better than the guy next to you. That if you're good enough, you go to heaven. I'll never forget when Andy Stanley said those words. He said, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Because ultimately, what it means to have a relationship with your heavenly father, what it means to have your future and your eternity changed is when we acknowledge that we can't do it on our own, that we are dead spiritually. We might look good, we might have a lot of money, we might be successful in the world's eyes, but we are dead spiritually. And we acknowledge that only God can change our hearts. Only God can change our eternities. Isn't it ludicrous to think that you can somehow be a better dead person than another dead person? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That's what we're saying when we somehow compare ourselves with others. Truth is, there is no competition in dead. Dead is dead. If we're operating and counting on that, then then we're on this endless treadmill that leads to nowhere. And that's a dangerous place to be. If you're counting on your performance before a holy and perfect God, you are in a dangerous place. I remember Max Lucado one time saying, to believe that you could somehow earn your way into God's favor is like believing you could take a running jump and reach the moon. It's an impossibility. But then there are others who have just written themselves out of a relationship with God. You might be that person that you don't believe in the whole God thing because somewhere along the way, you feel like, yeah, you've crossed too many lines and you've made too many poor decisions in your life and you're thinking a holy and perfect God will have no interest in a person like me. You see, the good news is that it's not that you have to try harder or that you somehow have to get your life all together. God's not looking for some future version of you that's way better. You cannot lose out on something you never earned in the first place. And yet some of us have totally counted ourselves out when all along God said, no, this is a gift. I made this available to you. When I sent my son to die on the cross, to believe that we somehow can earn it or that we've been excluded from it is to basically say the cross didn't matter and that Jesus' death didn't matter. And we have the potential, if we believe in either of these misunderstandings, We have a potential to to not 
embrace the gift that God has made available that will change our present and our future and our eternity. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on to write, and this seems totally contrary to what he just said. He writes, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That seems to be different, right? We just said works aren't gonna get you into the favor of God, that that he has already provided that. It's a gift. And now Paul's saying he's created you for good works. So, So where's the difference there? Keep in mind the context in which this is given. He spent nine verses talking about the grace of God, the kindness of God, that when you didn't deserve it, God gave it to you anyway out of love for you. He's not all of a sudden gonna change gears. And a part of the, the answer of what, what we're looking for in this passage is that, work, that word handiwork, handiwork. The word handiwork in Greek is poema. Poema means just what, you, what it sounds like. Poema means poem. You are God's work of art. You are God's masterpiece. You see, Paul is still referring to the work that God has done in us, the special place that we have in the heart of God and what God has been willing to do on our behalf. He's still moving in that direction. But here's here's what he's saying. He's saying that we don't do good works to earn God's love. We do good works because of God's love. There is a huge distance between earning God's love through works and our lives being an expression of God's love because of the expression of God's love in your life and in mine. You see, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And this is why the church, this is why if you're a follower of Jesus, this is why we go into the world and serve, and love, and give. Not because we're trying to earn brownie points with God, but because of the gratitude that we have for a God that is already for us, for a God that took you and me at our worst, at our worst, and gave us his best. For God who took our mess on in order to give us the full benefit of his grace and mercy. It's out of the overflow of that that we want to be a light of God's love to a world who so desperately needs him. What we've experienced in Christ, we want others to have as well. I love that, and I've said this a couple of times, this is one of the most profound things I ever heard someone say. Um, they were talking about the passage where um, Jesus encounters the, the blessing of his heavenly father, where his heavenly father says, um, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, where do you think that passage comes from? 
A lot of times we would assume that passage comes from the end of Jesus' life where he's done all these incredible miracles. He's done all these incredible teachings. He has served people with humility. You would think at the end of all of that, God would say, look at my boy. He's awesome. But it's not. God speaks these words over Jesus' life before he's ever done the first miracle, before he's ever given the first teaching, before he's ever stepped down to humbly serve on behalf of someone else. You see, we we love and we serve and, and we give back and we practice generosity, not out of obligation, but out of this incredible sense that we were dead And now we've been made alive. We were deserving of complete indignation from our creator. And instead, he moved on our behalf and he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it's out of the overflow of his love and his generosity that we now offer that back into a world in such desperate need. And then he's gonna finish, and um, I don't have time to go through all of this, but basically what he's gonna do from verses 11 through 22, and I hope you'll go back and read those this week. He's gonna then shift from what God has done in Christ for you, and he's gonna talk about the church. And the church in those days was nothing short of a miracle. Because what God did in Christ is he brought two unlikely groups of people together. He brought the Jews who for for centuries had walked with this identity of who I am in God. I am the chosen people of God. I am a part of the chosen people of God. We live in a different way from the rest of the world and he has chosen us to be his vessels in the world to carry out his redemptive plan. So think about that. For centuries, that's the way it's been. And then all of a sudden, there's this whole other group called the Gentiles. Anyone that wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. And all of a sudden, in the move of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And it took some time. It wasn't like on the day of Pentecost. Those were all Jews who had come for the the festival of Pentecost. It took years for this to happen. But in Christ, what Paul is gonna write is that God took two people that had nothing to do with each other, right? They didn't do business together. They didn't speak to one another. They didn't eat with one another. They did nothing together. And he brings those two groups together in Christ. Paul refers to it, he says, and in Christ, God broke down the wall of hostility. And a few years ago, I read that there literally was an actual wall in the temple that people referred to as the wall of hostility. And there's actually, uh, there were inscriptions written in, in at least three languages on this wall. This was like the, the temple was like the Jewish, you know, the sacred building for the Jews to go and make their sacrifices. And there was this outer court for the Gentiles. This is where the non-believers could come just up to this wall, but they couldn't go inside. But it was kind of like just a little tip of the hat saying, hey, you can at least come and look in. 
but don't go any further. The inscription on the wall was basically a keep out sign. It said, if you cross through this barrier, you run the risk of being put to death. How bad does the division division have to be for you to threaten bodily harm to a person who comes into your church? That's basically how bad it was. And what Paul is saying here is that God is doing a new work. He's taking two unlikely groups and bringing them together to make one new humanity. And out of that movement, God is gonna do something special to change the world. Do you know that you and I, unless you're a Jew and you're here today and you were born a Jew, you're a Gentile. We are the recipients of what God did in Christ. Not only were we saved in Christ when we didn't have a prayer, but we were also brought into the family of God. Paul said, at one time as a Gentile, you were a foreigner, you were, a, you were a, you know, an alien. And he says, now you've been brought close. You have been brought into, you are a member of the household. This was a good Jew who's lived all of his life as a Jew saying this. The two had become one. You see, the Jewish people had been told by God, I want you to be a light to the Gentiles. But somewhere along the way, they lost their heart for people far from God. And they began to build this holier-than-thou club that was exclusive. And you couldn't be a part of it if you were an outsider. There's something radical that God is doing in this moment in what Paul is writing. What he is saying is that God is bringing the outsider in. And the two are becoming one. Because the truth is, God is in the business of bringing those who in the world might be totally separate. God's bringing them together. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. They are one, slave nor free. They are all one now in Christ. God is building a new humanity. And Paul's gonna go into that more next week. So we'll pick it up there. But for the time being, I just want to offer the invitation today um, for some of you who maybe you're already, you've already placed your trust in Jesus today. And if you have done that, I want you to hear, I hope that we're still living our lives out of gratitude and not trying to earn something with God. And I hope that we're not living in such a way as Christians that we feel like we're better than someone else. How can you be better than someone else when you didn't earn your way in to begin with? It was a gift to you just like it is to anybody else. I hope we live with humility and love for those who are on the, maybe feeling like they're on the outside looking in. That we never lose that heart of love for those who haven't placed their trust in Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. But then also there might be some of you here today that for you, maybe you haven't placed your trust in Jesus. You've been kind of living on the self-improvement plan that you're kind of comparing yourself to someone else and saying, well, I'm not as bad as them, so I probably got a pretty good shot at this. 
pretty good. I hope that, that, that where we see ourselves going with God and with eternity is better than pretty good. And, um, but some of us are living in that dangerous place of, I'm just gonna be a good person. Haven't you heard that at the end of anybody's funeral? Oh, well, they were a good person. That's a dangerous place to live when the Bible categorically does not offer that truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And you can't make yourself saved. You can only receive it as a gift from me. And there might be those, some of you that are on the outside with Jesus who are just simply, you've already counted yourself out. You feel like, you know, you feel like I I don't deserve. There's no way for me. That's why Paul writes, but because of God's great love. Even when you were dead (coughs) in your transgressions, he makes you alive. So I pray like crazy today that if there's some of you online or here in the room that have never placed your trust in Jesus, you can do that right here and right now. So I wanna give you that opportunity. So I wanna invite us all, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. And if that's you, I just wanna encourage you before I lead in this prayer, if that's you, I wanna encourage you right now, if you would, would you just slip your hand up while no one else is looking, just slip your hand up if that is you and you'd like to make that decision today. I wanna pray for you and you make this your prayer. Dear God, thank you for loving me, even at my worst. Thank you for moving on my behalf, even when I was dead, in my transgressions. I cannot do this without you. I place my trust in you and what you have done on my behalf. Come into my life, come into my heart, change my heart, do what only you can do. I place my trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's podcast. We'd love to connect with you and hear from you on how this week's podcast impacted you. You can always connect with us through our app, Beach Church Jacks, which is found on the iTunes store or the Google Play store. And you can always go to our website, beachchurchjacks.com. Have a great day.